Everybody. Welcome to episode 56 of the Bomber Brothers podcast, brought to you as always by the Pinstripe Alley community of podcasts. Sean and Ryan here recording at nighttime instead of the morning because in classic quarantine fashion, neither of us realized what day of the week it was and until noon, which was pretty funny. You texted me this morning, Sean. You were like, oh shit, I forgot. Didn't realize today was Thursday and we were supposed to record and I didn't even know it was Thursday until that text. Yeah, um, we we were sharing memes at work of uh, quarantine memes, and uh, somebody posted one where you know, like it's the one from The Hangover where their all their equations are are oh, over yeah. uh, his head, and it's like trying to figure out if tomorrow is Thursday or June. So I thought that was uh, that was appropriate for for what we dealt with this morning. Yeah, but we're here now. We're overcoming the the mishap, and we have a guest this week. We talked to Peter Body. He recently. Uh, came out with his book, The Big 50, the uh, which recounts the biggest men and moments behind the New York Yankees. And we discussed a lot of highlights about his top 50, which obviously that's a tough task, confining it to just 50 given the the franchise. And like Peter said in the in- interview, this is part of a, a series of, of books that other authors participate in, and I'm sure it's probably easier to keep it to 50 if it's a team like, you know, uh, I was about to say a team like the Rays, but that would be really hard because then you have to get to 50. I'm th- I'm thinking of it in terms of difficulty <laughs> in keeping it to 50, but but a team like the Pirates or something like that. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we'll we'll go ahead and start off with that interview. Um, for everyone listening, be sure to keep listening after we talk to Peter because we're going to continue our season look back series uh, this week with 2007, which was. You know, it obviously was not the best ending, but I thought it was actually one of the more fun years because it was one of the rare times where the Yankees actually had to fight just to get into the playoffs, which is something that we hadn't experienced much up to that point because the Yankees were always winning the division or comfortably ahead in the in the wild card race. So 2007 was a was a memorable year for me, at least. I uh, yeah, I agree. All right, so before we get into that, here is Peter Body on the big his book, The Big 50, which is out now. Everyone can get it now. It came out last week, I believe, and here is Peter. Welcome back, everybody. We're joined now by Peter Body. You can catch his work at the New York Post, SNY. You can also catch his new book, The Big 50, which covers everything in Yankees history, all the pivotal teams, players, moments, and that is out now. Peter, thanks so much for coming on and talking to us about your new book. And uh, one of the best parts about the book is it covers so many prominent players in Yankees history, but also just does it in a new light and helps you th- think about new things. For instance, there's a chapter on Don Mattingly, which got Sean and I thinking, you know, where do you think Don Mattingly ranks in Yankee history among the best 
Yankee players never to win a World Series. I know for us, some other ones that came to mind were Mike Mussina or Jason Giambi. Just where do you think Mattingly ranks in those Yankee players to never win a ring? Well, especially because, you know, dating back to Babe Ruth in the 20s, really all of the superstars in Yankee history, um, you know, attained at least one World Series championship. They won so many in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 90s, um, that most of the stars on the team who played, you know, a long time with the franchise um, would have won at least one World Series. I think Mattingly, you always hear it in, in golf, right, the greatest player never to win a major, and until somebody does it, they... That, that label kind of sticks with them. I think Mattingly would have to rank ahead of of Yusina and Giambi because those guys were kind of mercenary, hired gun type free agent signings um, who didn't play their whole careers with the Yankees. Mattingly did um, play alongside uh, Dave Winfield for that whole uh, you know for, during the eighties, um, and Winfield would obviously is another Hall of Famer that that fell short of winning a, a championship uh, in New York. Um, but but Mattingly, I think, would have to be at the top of the list, and it's kind of like a backhanded compliment, right? Like you, you're the you're the you're the, the best of that classification, and it shouldn't you shouldn't hold it against Mattingly that the Yankees didn't win a World Series title in that era. I mean, he was one of the dominant players in baseball, you know, during those years. The Yankees just never had the pitching to win at all. And he came so close in his final year in '95 before they're bounced by the Mariners in a crazy Game Five, and then the Yankees win it all the next season in, in 1996. And the '96 team is the first team that you mentioned in the book in uh, one of the earlier ones. I think it's number 12 of your Big 50, and that was obviously the team that started the most recent dynasty in Yankee history. Just you know, looking back and writing about the 96 Yankees, where do you think that team stands in terms of the most important teams in Yankee history, a franchise that has had so many? Well, that really started kind of the latest dynasty we've seen in baseball. They won four out of four out of five years, and they came without a came within a, a Luis Gonzalez bloop of, of winning uh, a fifth in six years in 2001. Um, so obviously, the 96 team was the start of it all. I mean, really, you could go back. A few years before that, when when Stick Michael was kind of running the team while George Steinbrenner was suspended, and you know decided to start holding on to some of the prospects that would have been traded uh, in the earlier decade. You know, in the '80s, they traded away guys like Fred McGriff and Willie McGee and Doug Drabeck and Jose Rio, and just on and on. Um, guys never really kind of made it to the to the Yankees and stayed. When they kept Bernie Williams in the early '90s, that was the beginning of of them kind of leaning on the homegrown guys again. And then obviously we know what happened with, with Jeter and with, you know, with Jeter and, and Pettit and Posada and Mariano, you know, coming out of the system after that. Um, so I think that night, but I think that 96 team, um, the reason I had them ranked ahead of the 20, I mean, obviously everybody knows that the 27 Yankees and the 98 Yankees are two of the great teams in franchise history, but I had just written so much about Ruth and Gehrig and, players from the from the older eras that uh, I wanted to get the 96 team up there prominently and I figured even though I know the 98 team was the better team than the 96 team I thought the 96 team obviously was the reason there would be no 98 team without that 96 team and even even losing the next year in 97 to Cleveland um, but that was the arrival of Joe Torre it was the arrival of Jeter and uh, really it was the arrival of Mariano as a force even though he was on the 95 team uh, that lost to Seattle in the playoffs but that was the year that Mariano kind of emerged as this dominant setup man that the Yankees really didn't know what they had even, you know, uh, you know, coming into that season. 
ended up being a, a dominant set of set of man for Wetland. And then when Wetland left as a free agent the next year, Mariano took over as the closer and ended up being the greatest closer in, in baseball history. And Peter, another team that you bring up in your in your fifty is the uh, nineteen ninety nine championship team, which. Um, I don't know about you, but I feel like it gets overlooked. When you were writing this, do you do you also think the '99 team gets overlooked because they were really good that year, only lost one game in the postseason, and not a lot of people talk about that team. And that was a very different year, guys, from the from the '98 team, which was really kind of a steamroll after after the first week of the season when they started, you know, one and four, and George was going crazy, and Cashman got ordered off the road trip. '99 uh, was a very different season, really from the beginning. Um, at the start of spring training, they trade David Wells, who had thrown a perfect game in 98, uh, to Toronto with Graham Lloyd and Homer Bush for, for Roger Clemens. Um, and it was kind of a, a moment where the, you know, the Yankees thought, all right, we're not, you know, and Cashman and, and George Steimer thought, we're not going to sit idly on this, this ridiculous 125 win season we just had. We're going to, we want to always look to improve the team. Um, so they trade for Clemens. And then also in spring training, uh, Joe Torre gets diagnosed with, with cancer and has to leave the team for treatment for a little while, you know, into the first uh, month plus of the regular season. And uh, so Don Zimmer takes over as manager and it wasn't, it wasn't uh, as easy a season as 98 was, uh, but 99, uh, you know, and, and defeating the, the Braves again in the world series. And you guys mentioned they even in the postseason, their record was even better than it was in 98 when they were 11 and two in 99, they were, they were 11 and one. And I do. I think that team gets overlooked somewhat because it's kind of sandwiched between the 98 squad and the 2000 team, which didn't have a great regular season, but went on to, to beat the Mets in the, in the Subway Series, you know, first one since the Dodgers and Giants left town in the 50s. Um, so the fact that that I think that those are the reasons that 99 kind of gets the, the short uh, the short end of the stick uh, when people look back on Yankee history. And another one of your big 50 is actually the, the stadium or the stadiums themselves, which do play a big part in Yankee history. Um, you know, we grew up going to Yankee Stadium Park 2, and uh, you know now we go to Yankee Stadium 3. But it, it felt like when Yankee Stadium 3 opened, it was very quiet, a very business-like atmosphere. And it, it's come alive again in, in the last few years, even though the teams were very competitive in 2009 and 11-12. Why do you think it took a little while for fans to – warm up to the new stadium and it's, i mean they did win the world series that first year uh, that the stadium was open and i think that was a, a you know a big deal but i feel like it, it just didn't have the kind of the history and the little nuances that the old stadium had i mean i was there in during all those world series runs in the late 90s and even even 2001 after uh after 9 11 uh never felt any atmosphere like that in a stadium those two nights on back-to-back nights that uh, Tino and Brocious hit the game-tying home runs in the ninth innings of games four and five, and the Yankees went on to win both of those, even though they didn't win that series. Uh, yeah, you just you just always kind of felt that magic. I was in the in the building as well for the for the Aaron Boone walk-off home run in uh, 2003, game seven against the Red Sox. And the old stadium just had just kind of had that mystique and aura, as as Kurt Schilling actually uh, said about the stadium when the you know when the ghosts come out. Um, and the, you know the, the new stadium, the, and the, even that part of the stadium was was very different from the stadium that Ruth, that Ruth and Garrick and Mantle and DiMaggio played in, uh, you know, with the 461 foot Death Valley and left center field, and it was just a very different ballpark after they renovated it in the 70s. Um, but I think the new stadium, 
you know, until you until you get those moments, and I know the 2009 World Series was a great starting point, but they haven't been able to build on it. And uh, you know, it's it's more considered while the while the old stadium was the house that Ruth built and had all the kind of spirits and and different uh, quirky things about it. The, the new stadium is just this monolithic, you know, billion plus dollar stadium that you know doesn't really have the personality that the that the old stadium did. At least for me. Um, you know, you, you get the you watch games sometimes and you see the seats empty behind the behind the plate. Uh, you know, some of those fans don't don't sit there. But, you know, they sit at the restaurants inside during the during the games, and it kind of just doesn't have the same feel that the old stadium does. Now, not to take away from that, it's a beautiful stadium, great amenities. That you know, every part of the experience is 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 probably better than the you know than the old stadium. At least at least in terms of you know bathrooms and concessions and walking around the stadium and those kind of things. Um, but I, but I feel like the Yankees need to make their own history with this new group with with Aaron Boone and Judge and Sanchez and Glaber and these guys kind of have to cement their own place in history for it to really become, you know, have that feeling of the old stadium again. And you mentioned when talking about the old stadium, games four and five of the 2001 World Series, which of course are two of the most memorable nights in that stadium's history and also couple, coupled together as an entry in your Big 50, and you you reference uh, a talk you had with Scott Brocious a couple years back, and he talked about just how incredible that was. When, when you talk to guys like Brocious and you know Tino's about those two nights, do you get ever get a sense that they almost still can't believe what those two nights were like and that what they were able to accomplish? And, and do they seem to be more upset about how that World Series ended when they look back on it, or are they more focused on those two nights where just the incredible happened two nights in a row? I feel like among the guys that I talk to, they think of those nights as some of the greatest moments that they experienced as part of that run. Uh, even though they lost that series, obviously it was a tough series for them to lose Mariano on the mound with the lead in the, you know, in the final inning. Um, so, I mean, they look back on it as a, as a tough pill to swallow. I mean, imagine what the, I think Lee Mazzilli, Lee Mazzilli says in the book, like, imagine what the parade would have been like that year um, in New York to, to, to be able to give New York a parade um, or something similar. Um, just, you know, with everything, with all the kind of gut-punching sadness that was that was going on uh, in the city and, and in the country at that time, um, they... Uh, they, they think of they think of those nights fondly. Like Brosha said, like couldn't believe it happened the same way a second night in a row. Like it's one thing for it to happen the first night when Tino hits the homer and and Jeter hits the Mister November home run to to win it. Um, but imagine the, the 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 same pitcher on the mound in the same circumstance and Brosha hits hits a tying home run the next night. He's like I'm running around the bases thinking I can't believe this just happened. Um, and you know Tori feels the same way about it. Like couldn't believe what he was watching and um you know I, I feel like obviously it would have been at that i mean that might have been probably the, the greatest world series win just because of the importance to the city it would have had if they could have won it but i don't think it takes away that much for those guys who were there those two nights like i said before that the stadium felt like it was going to fall down uh on both of those nights and the second night in particular nobody could believe what they were seeing and uh, it was a, it was an unbelievable atmosphere, considering everything that was going on. President Bush had thrown the first pitch, um, you know, at the at the start of the home games in that in that series, and it was just a it was just a just a surreal time for everybody. And I think the Yankees 
definitely still look back on it fondly, even though they lost that World Series. And one of the one of the other great moments uh, in your book is the Costanza chapter, the uh, the mentioning of George Costanza from Seinfeld. I was curious because you know Elaine obviously dates a former Met in Keith Hernandez of the Yankees that you've covered. Which Yankee could have uh, could have filled in for Keith and and been a been a representative boyfriend for Elaine that would have brought something to the show? Do you think? Oh, that's pretty funny. Um, I mean, I don't know if to throw out there different guys are married or whatever, but I mean, like somebody like David Cohen is really funny, and I could see him fitting into a role like that. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld was a huge Met fan, so that's why I really I wanted to talk to to, to Larry David, and I was I felt really fortunate to get him on the phone and uh, talk to him for about an hour. Um, he's such a diehard uh, New York sports fan. He grew up in Brooklyn and um, grew up worship, worshiping Mantle and, the, and those Yankees in the 50s and 60s. And um, so I, I asked him, I said, why would you guys use Keith early in the early in the series? Why wouldn't, when you needed a job for George, why wouldn't you have had him working for the Mets? And he said, it's, it's, it's as simple as George Steinbrenner. They just felt like they could go so many different ways. He was the perfect kind of character that they could parody and caricature in, in that in that setting and as we saw over the years they really took it to extremes um with larry providing the voice for george one funny story about that that larry tells me in the book is that uh george actually flew out to to, to la to film a couple of scenes um for for one of the episodes in like season six or seven and and george uh it didn't go it didn't go well they filmed it he, he did some scenes with julie louis dreyfus he was going to he offered to he offers to take her to George Costanza's wedding, and um, it, it just it just didn't work. And Larry and Jerry realized that from the beginning, and, but they had to they had to be the ones to tell George that he was getting cut from the from the uh, from the episode. And uh, he took it pretty well, but um, it's funny that George, you know, kind of embraced uh, you know him you know him being lampooned on the on the show. Because he didn't know much about it when they first contacted him to get his approval to use his likeness and the Yankees' likeness in the show, um, the Yankees' brand. And George did, you know, his grandchildren were the ones who kind of egged him on to do it. They were fans of the show. Um, George actually was quoted once in the in the '90s as saying that his grandchildren thought it was cooler that he was on uh, that he was a character on Seinfeld than anything else he had accomplished in his life, including owning the Yankees, which is which is pretty funny, but. Um, yeah, I mean, it was such a big part. I knew, I knew from the beginning when I when I signed on to do the book that I wanted to try to do a chapter on George Costanza. As difficult as it was, paring down the Yankees and their storied history to only, you know, to only fifty chapters. We're talking with Peter Body about his new book, The Big Fifty, which covers all the prominent teams, players, and historic moments in the Yankees' rich history. And and Peter, there are so many moments in Yankee history. They've won more titles than any other team in sports. So I'm sure narrowing it down to 50 teams was a difficult task. Were there any, you know, fringe players or teams that you were hoping to get into the book and just realized there weren't enough room? Maybe any honorable mentions that uh, didn't make the cut? Definitely. I had I, when I first started, I had a list of probably 80 to 100 names of players, managers front office people, owners, you know, specific moments, um, you know, World Series moments, perfect games, uh, and then and then obviously the 27 championships. So it was a daunting task to narrow it down to 50. So what I told myself in the beginning, because I knew I wanted to do this Costanza chapter, but what I told myself in the beginning was that um, 
I have to put all of Babe Ruth's moments in one chapter. I have to put all Garrett's moments, DiMaggio's moments, Mantle's moments, Jeter's moments, etc., into one into the into their own chapter. Um, because I could do, let's face it, I could do ten Jeter moments. I could do ten Babe Ruth moments, and the book would be over. Um, so I put all their, I, I consolidated their feats into one into their own chapters, and then I. I combined some of the World Series years. I tried to do a f- several individual ones, especially the recent ones. Um, but the um, like from nineteen when they won four in a row from nineteen thirty six to nineteen thirty nine, I kind of made that one chapter and tied it in with Bill Dickey, um, who was you know the star catcher on those teams. He kind of bridged the Ruth Garrick teams to the DiMaggio teams, um, and then I also combined the the five peat from nineteen forty nine to nineteen fifty three. Because um, it was a lot of the same players on those teams with Casey as the manager, um, so I, you know that was the way I could narrow it down. I mean, some a couple of championship years end up getting glossed over. I I just put a couple of graphs about like say them repeating in 1962 um, into the 1961 Roger Maris chapter um, because I couldn't, I just couldn't, I didn't have enough chapters. Um, this is a series by Triumph Books, and they've done some other teams, and they sent me some examples when I first got the you know, sign the contract to do the book. And, um, you know, like they sent me, for example, the Minnesota twins and not to disparage the Minnesota twins, but the, the, the person who's number 25 or 30 in the twins history isn't cracking the top 500 when it comes to the Yankees. So that was the, that was probably the most daunting part of it. But I feel like I covered all the bases, um, with some combined chapters. And, you know, really when you look at it, Ruth was traded for in 1920 and this past year was 2020. Um, and that's where I ended the book with chapter 50 being the baby bombers and their, you know, their, uh, their quest now to, to, to cement their own place in this, you know, storied history of this franchise. Yes, yeah, certainly every big moment player and team is covered. Again, that's Peter Body. You can get his book, The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the New York Yankees. It is out now. Peter, thanks so much for coming on and talking with us and, and all the best uh, in the book success. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back, everybody, and thanks again to Peter Body. Everyone, make sure to go check out that book. It's really good and keeps things fresh while still recounting some of the more well-known people and moments behind the Yankees. And uh, Sean, I guess before we get into 2007, if you had to pick a top three of, of a Big 50 for it doesn't have to be Yankees history as a whole, but your Yankee history as a fan, what would your Big Three be? Um, I mean, I could have spoken to Peter about George Costanza and Seinfeld. And <laughs> when he told, when he told us that he talked to Larry David for an hour, I just wanted him to reiterate the whole conversation. Yeah. I was jealous. <laughs> yeah, I was too. All right. My, my top three, just like moments, uh, for the Yankees, well, it's the men thing. and moments that the make up the Yankees. So it could be a team. It could be a moment. It could be a player. Cause that's, you know, Peter did everything from, you know, game yeah. four and five of oh one to the 96 team to, you know, players yeah, like A-Rod yeah. and, and Babe. 
Uh, I would say my three would be the Girardi triple in 96, game four and five in 2001, and Derek Jeter. Those are like the three things I probably would think about first. And, you know, Jeter's not my favorite player to put on the pinstripes ever. Definitely in the top, top couple. But, um, I mean, when I think about the Yankees and, and my fandom of, of them, he's there for pretty much uh, 75, 80% of all, all the moments. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the Girardi triple in 96 is probably the uh, the f- I mean, when you watch that and you realize what it represents in the moment, it's uh, it's it's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I pretty much have would have the exact same three. I mean, he kept it to teams, moments, and players. So I wanted to pick one of each, and mine would have been the '96 Yankees would be the team, the moment would be four, games four and five of the '01 World Series, and the player would be Jeter. So we've got pretty much the same thing. Yeah, and I think I think you could change them out pretty easily because I don't think either of us would argue with the other one if we said Mariano Rivera for the player. Oh no, of course. Um, or if we said the '98 team instead of the '96 one. I mean, you know, there's no argument. You know, there's we got we got pretty lucky with what we've seen. Yeah, and I, I honestly think that 2007. You know, we talked last week about how. 2001. If we ha- if we could pick one Yankee team in our life that didn't win the World Series. Uh, 2001 would be the easy pick for us, which I still believe. But 2007 is a sneaky one for me in terms of teams that I really wish won a World Series. I mean, I would say 2001, 2017, 2007 certainly is is in the conversation for me just because of how much they did have to fight in the regular season, which like I said before the interview with Peter, that was, that was kind of a rarity for us in our Yankee lifetime of of being fans is because they were almost always pretty easily getting into the playoffs and this was not the case this year and there was obviously plenty more going on as well you had Joe Torre and his job fate hanging in the balance you had you had Pettit back on the Yankees you had the arrival of Jabba Chamberlain which was so much fun there was just a lot of stuff about this season that you were really bummed when they weren't able to get out of the first round, but I still think it was a, a memorable season and, and worth looking back on. Yeah, it was, I mean, absolutely incredible. I mean, you think about it, they were, what, 22 and 29 at, at one point? Yeah, um, this was this was the first year in I don't know how long that they had entered the All-Star break under 500. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I think they got to 22 and 30 or something because I know they got to eight games under 500. And... Um, they they played you know what six seventy ball in the in the second half something like that. So they, they had a six seventy nine winning percentage in July, a seven oh four winning percentage in September. Just an absolutely insane second half, and it, it made it really fun to watch. Um, and there were still some really good moments in the beginning of the season. Like if you think about um, the A Rod walk off grand slam, walk off through run homer. It's not like the season in the beginning was dearth of, of really good moments. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I also go back to the game in, in June when A-Rod had the get, go-ahead homer off Papelbon in the ninth inning at Fenway. That's like one of my most uh, replayable A-Rod moments for me as a Yankee, just going oppo against Papelbon, who was obviously you know a star at that time. And I think that was, I think that was a one nothing win. That was like the only run of the game on Sunday night. 
Yeah, I actually, I was at, uh, you know what? I went out with some friends like we used to do when we were younger. We were going to a diner like late at night after doing something. And I was, guys, I'll be in in one minute. I just want to hear the, the ninth inning of the Yankee game. And and I was sitting in the, the parking lot when A-Rod hit that homer of the Menlo Park Diner. <laughs> Listen to John, John and Susan call it. But yeah, that was a big moment. And that really started to turn things around because they, I think they went, what, like six, 16, they won 16 games in June. So that was really them starting to turn it around after the horrible April and May. And then in July, they just, you know, they caught fire. But, um, yeah, it was a weird year, too. I mean, you had the – A-Rod has a monster year. Roger Clemens comes back. Yeah, you have you have the Clemens and George Steinbrenner's box incident. Um, you have, like you said, A-Rod having a monster year. Posada had a monster year. Um you had the pitching rotation, an absolute mess in the beginning of the year. Kayagawa was a complete nightmare. He he went from the majors like straight to single A after he gave up however many runs it was in his first few starts as a Yankee after getting paid forty six million to come over here. And then you had what Jeff Karstens slid into the rotation and, and got hit with a line drive with a leg. Yeah. Uh, it was yeah, it was a wild year for the pitching staff. I, I do remember that. I think they had they set some kind of record for like the most number of starting pitchers uh, used. Yeah, I can't, let's see. Well, we went to Phil, Phil Hughes came up that year. We went to his first start against the Blue Jays. Yep, yep. And then soon after that, he went six and a third hitless innings against the Rangers and, and hurt himself. Yep, pulled his hammy. I remember I remember watching that game. But yeah, I remember being at his first first career start. And um, remember how excited everybody was for uh, Kennedy, uh, Ian Kennedy. Yep. Right. Phil, uh, Hughes. Phil Hughes and Jabba Chamberlain. That was going to be the future. They were going to three aces. Yeah. Mm. Um, <laughs> here, here it is. The Yankees set the major league record. They used 10 different starters in the first 30 games in 2007. Well, that's not what you want. Because Chinming Wong got hurt early in the year. Carl Pavano, big surprise, got hurt. This was a rough year for Mike Mussina. So the Carl Pavano started the home opener that year. <laughs> I was just opening day. I remember that. Dad took me to this restaurant called the Stadium, which is in sort of like on the way to your house. So I have to we had to drive like past Yankee Stadium. He was like, oh, I'm taking you somewhere, I'm gonna surprise you. Well, like, okay, cool. We're probably going to the game, right? So we drive past the GWB and just go to a restaurant. Like, I'm thankful for it, but you know, if you're driving <laughs> past the stadium on opening day, you're gonna think you're going to opening day. Yeah. But we got to watch Carl Pavano pitch while we sat in a restaurant for three hours, so it was cool. Jeter had a big home run on opening day too. I remember that. Yeah. And so. and and A Rod had an absolute monster April. Oh, forget it. And speaking of big months, Hideki Matsui had a monster July. Didn't he hit like thirteen home runs in July? I mean, Matsui, Matsui is one of those players when you look, you don't remember like him having just huge years. Period. But he. He has some great years when you when you go back and look at the baseball reference for the Yanks. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so then the Yankees are what down down ten games by July first in the division, and pretty much the same. It's like eight or nine in the wild card by that point, and things aren't looking good. They were fourteen and a half back on May twenty ninth, <laughs> and. Um, I remember just the second half of that season being so much fun. It was just very major league montage esque, like you know, following the standings and each win, and, you know, win after win, and the, suddenly the team is is on fire. And I think I, I remember having like a little piece of paper in my locker at in high school 
And like I would go into school the next morning and update like how and write on the paper like how many games back they were, and I would cross off, and it started at like nine or something like that. And then you know before you know it, yeah. come September they're back in a playoff spot. That yeah, that was awesome. And I, I mean, if you look on their baseball reference, like that the bar chart they have of all the the wins and everything and losses, it's just amazing when you look at past the All Star break how how few red there how few red dates there are. And, uh, it's funny how you remember things like I got a job that, that summer I was delivering pizza. So I got to listen to John and Susan every night while I was driving around. And I'm like, I'm looking at this game where they beat the devil race 17 to five in the second game of a double header. And I remember, like, I remember that they just were like murdering teams like that. Then the next night they won 21 to four. Yeah. Then nine to two. They just, they went on a roll and they beat the white Sox 16 to three. Then they won 16 to eight against the Royals. Like, crazy stuff that 16 to 3 game against the white Sox was when they hit eight home runs ozzy yeah. ozzy Gian got thrown out every everyone from cano to shelly duncan went yard in, in that game shelly duncan that's right he had that crazy uh crazy stretch in there yep so uh obviously a huge highlight of the season is is jabba i mean he became must see tv and it was he had the shout at the devil song when he came out and it was just like it was like another version of Mariano and Enter Sandman and just having them two in the back of the bullpen was was so much fun and of course there were the people that hated how pumped up he got after an out which was probably just as I don't really remember but it was probably just as annoying to hear people complain about that back then as it is to hear people <laughs> complain about bat flips now but I just remember being captivated by his run of just being so dominant and so animated on the mound. It was just, he was so much fun to watch and he was just really refreshing. Obviously it's a shame how it turned out, but I know we both had Jabba rules t-shirts. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, um, I, I mean, I, I was at the game where I think it was, he struck out JD drew with like runners on first and second or something like that against the Red Sox. And he went absolutely nuts. And that's <laughs> what kind of started the whole thing. And, I mean, I was a fan. I was just going absolutely crazy. I, I mean, you know, you, you love that stuff. It's, um, you know, I, I was, I was a fan of Jabba from the beginning just cause he brought so much energy and so much excitement into the game. And you have to remember where we were at that point with, you know, we had Kyle Farnsworth and, and you know, Tom Gordon did fine, but the bridge to Mariano was, was a huge problem for years. And that's why the Yankees lost in 2004. It wasn't because Mariano it was because the bridge to Mariano was faulty and Mo got taxed. And then you get to 2007 and you're still having problems in the bullpen. And then Jabba comes up and just changes everything. And he changes the whole attitude of the team. And, um, I mean, for him, I, I would almost put him as my MVP of the 2007 Yankees if it wasn't for uh, A-Rod. I'd still put Posada, too, probably. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Jabba was, Jabba was incredible. What, one earned run over he over 24 innings. Yeah, one earned run over 24 innings. He was only 21 <laughs> years old at the time. And like you said, aside from Mariano, there was Farnsworth, Brian Bruni, Mike Myers would come in to pitch to the Halloween theme song. So oh, there's Mike Myers. Yeah, there wasn't really much to uh, to look forward to out of the bullpen until you got to Mo. So Jabba coming in was just so much fun, and uh, and just a, like a again, just another jolt of energy to a team that just kept climbing after you know once the calendar flipped to July. 
and and get the wild card spot. They obviously couldn't catch up to Boston for the division, but they they were able to seal the wild card spot. Are there any other um, regular season moments that pop in your mind? The, the big ones for me, like I said, was the A Rod home run off Papelbon, the eight home runs against against the White Sox, uh, A Rod's 500th home run, youngest player in history to do it once he did. Um, the homer, think, yeah, the homer off Papelbon. You said, yeah. I remember they were right when they were like starting to take over. Remember they were they were chasing the Mariners that year, I think, in for the for the wild card. And I went to a series against the Mariners, and they were losing two one. A Rod hit two home runs in like the seventh inning. Like they batted around. He, he hit a home run to tie the game. They batted around, and then he hit one later in the inning. Seeing guy hit two. A Rod hit two home runs in one inning that year. That was that was crazy. Uh, Chiming Wong almost pitched a no hitter against the Red Sox, which a game we were at. Yeah, he had the big strikeout of Big Poppy in like the sixth yeah. or seventh inning or something like that to keep the no hitter intact. We almost we almost were late that game. We almost missed the train. I remember we ran up the stairs, and Mom was asking while Chiming Wong has a no hitter going against Boston, when are they going to bring Jabba in? That's how big <laughs> Jabba was. That Mom didn't realize that Chiming Wong was pitching a no hitter and wanted to know when we're going to get to see Jabba. That does perfectly uh, encapsulate then, <laughs> the Java craze. And then Java, Java, for some reason, that day decided he hated Kevin Euclid. <laughs> hated him. <laughs> that was so weird. Yeah, that was weird. I'm just didn't, uh, didn't Schilling start for the Red Sox that game? I, I think so. Yeah, I'm making that up. Cano hit two homers, right? Yeah, Cano was um, was blossoming into stardom at that point and quickly becoming my second favorite player on the Yankees aside from Jeter. Imagine how much you like me around. Doesn't matter to me. <laughs> For, former friend of the podcast, Ben Lindbergh clearly wrote out how Cano's running only cost him like four infield singles a year. So I'll gladly give those up for a guy who played 160 games a year. That's fair. It was, it was Kurt Schilling, by the way, that started. Oh, it's always <laughs> great when Kurt Schilling loses. Yeah. Did you Although, see on, did you see on Twitter yesterday? Um I I didn't see it, but I got the alert from like Bleacher Report. <laughs> yeah, uh, for anyone These who didn't see wild. For anyone who didn't see, someone tweeted at David Wells who was someone in the majors that everyone else in the league seemed to universally hate and um and Wells said Schilling. Nice. Yeah. So Good. I guess before we get to the playoffs, I'm just looking at A-Rod's stat line, a 176 OPS plus, of course, the 54 home runs. He was he was just a monster. But again, contract, contract year, too. Yeah, he announces his opt-out during the World Series. Um, but then again, Posada in his age 35 season, a 153 OPS plus. It's like I was saying to you the other day um, when they when the MLB The Show announced that their new diamond player was 2000 Posada. It would be cool if there was like an evolution challenge in the game where you can get up to 2007 Posada and then his rating goes up like seven points or something. Cause that's just how nasty he was that year. Yeah, that, that would be pretty sick. And uh, yeah, another guy in a contract year. Yeah, that's right. I didn't even, I didn't even remember that. Yeah. So and uh somebody else was somebody else was in their walk year too. I know Pettit had only had a one year deal, I think, but Yeah. Maybe maybe it was two, but anyway. So the Yankees somehow win ninety four games. They only finished two games back in the division. They almost they almost it felt like twenty seventeen. Like if the season was another week or so longer, like they they could have caught him. 
but they but they settle for the wild card and they go in and play Cleveland, who I believe they beat every time they faced them that year in the regular season. The Yankees did, weren't the Yankees like six and zero against them. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you're right. So of course we're going in with confidence. The Yankees were one of the hottest teams in baseball. They're playing a team they hadn't lost to um, all regular season, and then they get absolutely demolished in in Game One, going up against CC. They outscored Cleveland forty nine to seventeen in the regular season, and then and then lose twelve to three in Game One. Yeah, against CC, and I think Melky hit a home run in like the early in that game or something like that because i remember feeling very hopeful early on and then just it all came undone yeah they scored they scored in the in the top of the first maybe that was the maybe that was the melky home run i'm trying to look right now no it was, it was johnny leading off it was johnny damon hitting a home run in lefty the top, on lefty against cc and you're like all right here we go and then shin ming wong comes in for, shin ming wong was a bad postseason pitcher yeah he definitely struggled in october and this was certainly one of those times he gave up three runs in the first inning did he ever win except the, for the game when jeter went five for five i don't think and so. even in that game they they scored eight runs for him yeah they, he lost game two in oh five yeah yeah he stunk wow yeah, and I liked Jimmy Wong in the regular season. Oh, of course. He was great. Um, so a, a much better pitching performance in game two, but the Yankees still weren't able to get it done. And this is when you bring up the 2007 season, this is the one everyone thinks about. It was the Midges game where, where Jabba couldn't throw a strike because he was being swarmed by a bunch of bugs. Joe Torre would later say it's his only regret as Yankee manager that he didn't pull the team off the field and, I just remember watching that, and it was it, obviously you don't think of it right away. But when I watched the highlights, I'm like, man, this was so surreal. Like you had Jeter and A Rod like spraying umpires with bug spray, like they were all helping each other out. It's like, didn't any of these guys like while doing this be like, maybe we should just get off the field for a little bit? Yeah, see, so like treat it like a rain delay. That probably would have been good, but of course but, they um, didn't. Yeah, they they didn't, and uh, and man, Java was yanking those uh, those breaking balls just. Yeah, probably getting like bit and stuff while he's doing that. They're all over him. I I felt bad for Java for that, but yeah, me too. He he had he was holding a lead in the eighth inning, and then clearly affected by the bugs, throws that wild pitch. I think it was Grady Sizemore scored the tying run off that wild pitch. I can't believe he only wound up giving up one run. Yeah, that's probably more incredible. And um, and, and to be fair, I think it was it was. Fausto Carmona, who was pitching that game, he came back out in the ninth, and the bugs were still there, and he pitched through it too. Yeah, that that's true. But that that's yeah, that was a a game where Pettit pitched his heart out, and then these damn bugs come in and and change the whole outlook of of the game and and maybe the series. I mean, if the Yankees go back to the Bronx tied one game apiece, it, it could look a lot different. What is with what is with crazy things happening in game 2 in Cleveland of ALDSs? We you know, 10 years later, we have Girardi not challenge a call that clearly needed to be challenged and then a, immediately followed by a grand slam. Uh, nine years before game two against the Indians this time in the in the Bronx. Knoblock. Knoblock. Yeah, game two against the Indians. Not good things. So future Yankee teams never get to game two if you're playing Cleveland. Just forfeit. Just get, put, throw, throw out, uh, you know, they, they could pitch Jay Happ that game. And uh, <laughs> just, you know, this way you just take an L and you'll be all right. Um, but that was a classic Andy Pettit game in game two as well. I mean, he doesn't have his best stuff. Indians get nine hits in total in that game. I'm not looking at Pettit's line right now, but, you know, 
he shuts him down, man. He gets him to the eighth inning, scoreless. Just Andy Pettit being Andy Pettit, and uh, that's the game Melky hit the home run in. Yeah, um, I just pulled up Andy's line. He gave up seven hits over six and a third. So, like you said, not his best stuff, but pulls him scoreless in a game the Yankees have to have. That was that was classic Pettit. Um, Honestly, if my life is on the line and I need somebody to win, it's got to be Andy. Like, no matter how else you think about it, like, oh, well, this guy's better. This guy. He's also been bombed sometimes when they need a win. I would pick El Duque. When when has he been bombed when they they absolutely knew this was the game? <laughs> it would help to win game six of the two thousand. It would help, World but Series. they didn't that wasn't a must win game. <laughs> I mean you can argue ninety eight was was pretty important. They had just lost this crazy game where Knobloch, you know, had a brain fart and he got rocked that game too. Well, when Knobloch pulled a rock. <laughs> but any, but anyway, back to this game. So then the Indians load the bases in the eleventh. And Luis Vizcaino's on the mound, who was traded, who the Yankees got for Randy Johnson when they traded him back to the Diamondbacks in the offseason. And he just throws what, what? this meatball right down the middle to Travis Hafner. <laughs> yeah. it, he, he literally, it was a full count with the bases loaded. And he, I, you can just tell he was like, I'm just going to throw this right down the middle and hopefully he misses it. <laughs> and hopefully, obviously hopefully, he didn't. Hopefully the line drive goes right at, uh, right at first base. That, yeah. That's all you're hoping for. Oh boy, yeah, that was a tough ending. That's that's one of those games you look back on and you think about what what could have been different. But um, you know, uh, like you said, Indians come out, they play through the bugs without giving up any runs, and and you know, the Yankees only got three hits that game, and that's that's crazy considering what the Yankees uh, what the Yankees offense was like in uh, in two thousand seven that they only got. Eight hits combined in the first two games in Cleveland. I don't even remember who pitched game two for Cleveland. Who started for them? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't even remember. Oh, uh, Carmona. No. Yeah. I don't think so. Pastel Carmona. Was it? Yeah. Hmm. Go figure. I didn't think he was still pitching by the ninth inning. Um, According to Wikipedia, he started... All right. Well, then we get to well, then we get to game three. This is one of the more underrated games. Uh, oh yeah, and and I'm not just saying it because I was there. Uh, you know, like Mike Francesa, I was in the building. Yeah, but um, no, this was a great game. I mean, the Yankees had just lost in heartbreaking fashion to go down two zero in the series, and then they fall behind three nothing in the game, and you're like, all right. I, you, you're the the big thing was too the morning of this game. It's on the cover of the the post and the daily news that if they lose Tory's getting fired. And mm-hmm. that's, that is like this whole other thing to all of this. And I remember I, I went to the game with my friends, Alex and Vinny, and we're talking about like, who's going to be the next manager. Is it going to be like Larry Boa or I remember that was a name that got thrown <laughs> yeah. out there. Joe, Joe Girardi. And it's just like, wow, I can't believe this might come to an end. And then they go down three, nothing. And Roger Clemens ain't got, Jack shit, no. and as usual, Trot Nixon hits a home run off of him. Yeah, yeah. But then, luckily, Phil Hughes comes in, save the day, I guess. <laughs> but the, obviously, the story of the game is it was Johnny Damon. I think he had four RBIs. Obviously, he had at least three because he hit the big three-run home run to give the Yankees the lead. Yeah, he had four. Melky had an RBI single right before Damon hit the three-run homer to cut it to three to two. But Damon got them on the board, and um, yeah, then then 
Damon hits a home run. And, and honestly, like, just like for myself, I was sitting in the upper deck. That is the only time. And I'm glad I got to do it. It's the last playoff win at Yankee stadium. But when Damon hit that home run, you could actually feel the thing shake. Like, like people had talked about. And I was really happy. I got to feel that, uh, one time in my life. So that was really cool. And then a couple, I think it was the next inning. Cano was up with the bases loaded and hit one to right field and Nixon just overran it. And the ball rolled behind him all the way to the wall. And it was a basis yep. clearing, a uh, basis clearing triple, uh, for Cano. And, uh, yeah, then they were on their way. Hughes pitches great, shuts them down for like three and two thirds. And, uh, Jabba comes in, gave up a run. They bring in Mo and, that's it. That that's the last win in the old Yankee Stadium in the postseason. Joe Torre's last win as a Yankee, and, uh, and and that was really it. Then 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 Chiming Wong the comes game. back in for game five, have, for game would, four. Would you have went to Musina here? No, I, I, I to be to be honest, I don't think I would have. I mean, Chiming Wong had been really good, and I don't know. I just don't know if I could have just saw his one bad start in game one and and just not trusted him again maybe i would have had a uh, i don't know i mean but he had a short leash on him anyway maybe i just would have not brought him back for the second inning i don't know yeah um it's not like it's not like moose was incredibly sharp either he walked four yeah. guys in four and two third innings yeah and he gave up two runs which proved to be the different look at the hit tolls for this game I know. got 12 <laughs> hits and only scored four runs. Yep. Can you take a couple walks? <laughs> Cleveland had 13. This is six. incredible. The Yankees hit three home runs, had 12 hits, and only scored four runs. They couldn't string any of this together. You know what I remember about this game? They were rolling. I think it was like the fifth or sixth inning. They were getting it going, and Jeter ground into a double play. And when yeah, that happened, I remember that. when like that, they were start. you could tell it was starting to be one of those Yankee stadium things moments. You could tell when that, when that the double play happened, you just knew it wasn't the, it wasn't the year they weren't going to do it. Cause if it was a year they were going to win, Jeter would have come through with a big hit there. Yeah, no, I remember that. Cause Shelly Duncan and Johnny Damon had like back, had back to back hits. And then, um, and then Jeter bounced into that double play. Yeah. Yep. That was that was rough, um, but my boy, my boy Cano had another multi hit game. What'd you say? I said my boy Cano had another multi hit game in game. Yeah, he four. had a, he, he had, homer. He had a big series. Yeah, he did. The rest of the offense did not, except Johnny Damon in game three. Yeah, really odd showing by the offense considering what happened in the regular season. But um, it was. It was pretty crazy. Yeah, it was it was a crazy year. Came to an unceremonious end with Chin Ming Wong on the mound. But uh but again, still a fun year. I mean that kind of was everyone was like, Oh, the dynasty's in transition after this year because A Rod opts out. They move on from Joe Torrey. And and then everyone's like, All right, th- maybe this is the end of like the dominant playoffs every year Yankees as we know it. They missed the postseason in two thousand eight and then not going to really say anything about it because I'm sure we're going to talk about this season in the future, but then they come back and win it all in 2009. Yeah, this, this, it's weird. Like every certain seasons definitely feel like they have specific endings and this one's no different because you change managers and Joe Torrey, who had been absolutely incredible for the Yankees. And, um, 
But at the same time, I think I, I don't know. It, it, aside from the manager, what do you really lose between seasons, right? Like 2008, they're just they're too old. Like besides Clemens, you really don't lose anything player wise. Yeah, and you kind of get something back because Moose wound up being really good in 2008 to make Absolutely up for 2007. Incredible. So yeah, yeah. there's just an old team. Um, and yeah. they they had one they had one great run in them and they they gave us a, a really really fun summer that was one of the more fun summers I had watched baseball this one was one too in in 2019 with the next man up thing it was like how does this keep happening and 2007 was like that too it wasn't next man up but it's like how do they keep winning this many games at this rate like this is incredible and they're pounding teams in the second half yeah so, it was really fun one of the most enjoyable regular seasons I think. Like you said, 2019 stands out, 2017 stands out for me, and, and like, oh, wow, these guys are good a lot earlier than I thought. This was kind of like, wow, these guys are somehow still winning after this awful start. And it was, yeah, like you said, it was a really, it was one of those summers where you get off school and you're looking forward to watching the game that night because they all meant something. It wasn't, yep. it wasn't like it was when we were younger where by July or August, you're like, okay, when, when did the playoffs start? Yeah, that's that's true. But then the, the the next year they don't make the playoffs, and then I'm like, I'll never complain again. If I know, yeah. in race, I'm I'm good. Just wrap it up, just so I know. I uh, get to October. All right, uh, who picked this one? I don't even remember. Did you I did, yeah. Okay, yeah. so then you're up next. What what year well, I, are we talking I, about I w- next? Week? I was going to pick oh one. So if you want to pick again, since we got to do the one I was going to pick. Because we had Kirchin on last week, you, you could pick again. That's, uh, I didn't even th- I didn't even think about it. Um, all right, so that was two thousand seven. I guess I'll back it up and, and go uh, two thousand three. Okay, that's what I was going to pick anyway. So that's awesome. All right, cool, perfect. So there you go. That's what we're going to be talking about next week, two thousand three. Thank you to everyone for listening. This week, thank you to Peter Body again. Everyone, make sure to go get that book. It, it's a good one. It's it's fun to read. It's cool to look back on all the historic players and moments and read a little bit about Seinfeld as well. So, thanks again to Peter. Thanks to everyone again for listening, and we will talk to everyone next week. See you later, everybody. <laughs>